We've been in 1 Samuel for the past several weeks, and today we'll be looking at 1 Samuel chapter 3. If you have a Bible, you can turn there, just a few books into the Old Testament in the historical section. If you don't have a Bible and you have a bulletin, you can find it on page 5. So if you want to track in one of those two places or if you have another means of, of reading the Scriptures... And we're going to notice, as we dive into the text, some silence. Well, silence is horrible. Well, some of the time, maybe most of the time. Of course, there are moments when we yearn for silence. After a long day of work, it's nice to sit down, have a moment alone. But not when there's relational tension. Have you ever had an argument with your spouse, or a close friend. Yelling isn't the worst thing, is it? I mean, the worst is silence. I mean, it's when your loved one walks away. It's when they stop answering the phone. You stare at your phone and you're, you're, you're refreshing WhatsApp and you're staring endlessly at those check marks and you're praying, oh Lord, give me two blue check marks. And then there's the elation when you see the word typing up across the top of your screen. You know exactly what I mean, don't you? Silence slays the soul, at least when there's relational tension and separation and even enmity. Well, that's where we find ourselves in 1 Samuel chapter 3. God seems to be silent. It's a tragic situation. And we're going to see three scenes, like scenes in a play, three scenes of action in our passage. So if you're taking notes, three scenes. Number one, we'll see God's silence. Number two, God speaks. And number three, God sends. God's silence, God speaks, and God sends. We'll see number one, God's silence. Look at verse one. Now the boy Samuel was ministering to the Lord in the presence of Eli, and the word of the Lord was rare in those days. There was no frequent vision. This is not a good silence. I mean, this is a nightmare. I mean, the word was rare. Yahweh often communicated to his prophets with visions, but those were infrequent. Now, God's people couldn't manufacture God's word. You can't force God to reveal himself. God's silence here is deafening. We have to ask ourselves, why is God's word so rare? What's going on? Why was God silent? Well, most likely because Israel stood under the wrath of God. We've seen their leaders. We've seen the rulers. We've seen the priests in sin. And maybe they just weren't hearing what God was saying. I mean, rare and infrequent visions and the word. It doesn't mean that there was no word. I mean, to hear, one has to have ears to hear. If you've ever been swimming, then you know you can get water in your ear. It's, it's quite annoying. I don't know if you've had this happen. It feels strange, and you do whatever you can to kind of tilt your head and get the water out. You want to get it out because it feels weird, and you can't hear really well. Well, here the Israelites' ears, they were completely filled. They weren't hearing anything. 
They were spiritually deaf. The worst thing is they didn't even know or care. They couldn't see. Verse 2, Eli, whose eyesight had begun to grow dim so that he could not see, was lying down in his own place. Eli's blindness appears to mirror the situation in Israel. They couldn't see. They didn't recognize their own sin. They didn't recognize their own spiritual blindness for what it really is. They were living in darkness. But we see a glimmer of hope. There's a, there's a hint. There's a, a couple hints in the passage that the future might be bright. There's a glimmer of hope. There's a teenager caring for God's house. Verse 3. The lamp of God had not yet gone out. And Samuel was lying down in the temple of the Lord where the ark of God was. Now we have some hints that God is at work. While Eli is sleeping in his own place and his sons may be sleeping with women, at the entrance, Samuel was sleeping in the house of God. And the mentioning of the ark is quite significant here as well. The ark was a gold box that symbolized God's presence. We're going to look at that a bit more here in the next couple chapters in 1 Samuel. But that box, that ark, symbolized God's presence. Israel had abandoned God, but God had not abandoned Israel. Exodus 27 tells us a lamp was lit at twilight and it was to be kept burning before the Lord in the tabernacle until dawn, till daybreak. And the scene takes place at night, likely right before dawn because the lamp had not gone out. This is probably symbolic here. As the curtain closes on scene one, Israel is in a dark night. The lamp points to a new day. There is hope. And that's when God breaks in to the passage. That's scene two. God speaks. We've seen God's silence. God speaks. God is going to speak here in this second scene. Look at verses four through 10. Then the Lord called Samuel and he said, here I am. And he ran to Eli and said, here I am for you called me. But he said, I did not call. Lie down again. So he went and lay down. The Lord called again, Samuel. And Samuel arose and went to Eli and said, Here I am, you called me. But he said, I did not call, my son, lie down again. Now Samuel did not yet know the Lord, and the word of the Lord had not yet been revealed to him. The Lord called Samuel again the third time, and he arose and he went to Eli and said, Here I am, for you called me. Then Eli perceived that the Lord was calling the boy. Therefore, Eli said to Samuel, go, lie down. And if he calls you, you shall say, speak, Lord, for your servant hears. So Samuel went and lay down in his place. And the Lord came and stood, calling as at other times, Samuel, Samuel. And Samuel said, speak, for your servant hears. In these verses, God breaks the silence. The Lord's call to Samuel reminds us of his call to Abraham, to Moses, to others. Samuel answers immediately, here I am, and he ran. Now, this is a big deal because in the middle of the night, if you're anything like me, in the middle of the night for me, I'm pretty much asleep walking around and stumbling around if I'm awake. But here, Eli, he gets up, he, he runs, verse 5, he runs. You called me? Eli says, no, no, no. It wasn't me. Go back to bed. 
And there are five imperfect verbs, one after another, after another, after another, after another, in this one verse. And it's, what it's showing us is rapid fire action. The scene is happening really, really quickly. One after another. Samuel goes back to bed, but then he gets called a second time. Same thing. He runs to Eli. Eli, you called, right? What, what, what is it? No, no, kid. Go back to bed. You must be hearing things. It wasn't me. I mean, Samuel is like the obnoxious alarm clock that you have. Right? Eli's trying to get some sleep, and he comes in over and over again. Now, some of, some of us are like this. Your alarm goes off, and you struggle to get out of bed. Now, the worst culprit for me was my uni roommate. Now, he was a great guy, good friend. His parents would bring me the best curries in the history of the world. And so I liked him, but there was a problem with him. He was a snoozer. You know, he... It was so bad that he would actually set his alarm clock across the room, across the dorm room, so that maybe it would actually wake him up and he'd walk over there. But see, he never actually did. His classes were before mine. He had to wake up before me. His alarm clock would go off and he would never move. I had to go off. I had to turn it off. He snoozed after that even more and more. Well, it looks like in our passage, Eli just wants to snooze. Samuel, Samuel, just go back to bed. Don't, don't bother me. See, Eli's not even trying to discern who's speaking, what's going on. Eli's just go back to bed. Let me get my sleep. Eli's not concerned with what's going on, which is strange. I mean, the whole scene is a bit strange because if you think about it, we're in the house of God. This is in the house of God and nobody is recognizing the word of God. It would be like his highness here in Dubai showing up to his palace, but getting turned away from the guards because they don't recognize him. It's bizarre. God is speaking, and they don't know it. I mean, what tragic irony. Even the priests don't know God's voice. Eli should have known what was happening. But verse 7 tells us why Samuel was confused. Now, Samuel did not yet know the Lord, and the word of the Lord had not yet been revealed to him. And this is a little strange because you might recognize the wording in the passage. It's very similar to the language used to describe Hophni and Phinehas because they didn't know the Lord. But it's different. It's a different situation. Those boys were rejecting God. They had completely rejected God. The point here that is being made is that Samuel has never heard God's voice before. He didn't recognize it. This isn't an indictment on Samuel. Samuel's not like Hophni and Phinehas, two very different situations. This verse doesn't blame Samuel. It explains this situation. Now, interesting on Samuel, we don't know exactly how old Samuel is here. He's probably a teenager, maybe between the ages of 15 and 17, maybe somewhere in there. And it's interesting, we have a teenager. Many of you in here are teenagers. I love this. We have a teenager who, who springs right up out of bed and is ready to serve while the high priest lays in bed not caring. It's amazing what a teenager can do, and we're going to see what, what Samuel does. It's amazing from a young age. So you, you're here and you're in Redeemer Youth or even Redeemer Tweens. I see some kids as well. God can use you in amazing ways if you respond to him. And we're going to see Samuel respond. Samuel's eagerness is in direct contrast to Eli's disbelief. 
but none of them know it's God calling. And so God speaks to Samuel over and over and over again. 11 times in this passage, we see the word call. I mean, it's definitely a main theme in the word here. God is patient. God is patient. Of course, three big calls, but throughout the whole passage, this theme of of calling, God is incredibly patient. There's grace all over these words. God is incredibly patient with his people. There's a pastor uh, that I like to hear preach um, who told the story of an uncle he had who served in the military during World War II. This uncle was struggling with eyesight, so he got taken off active duty and put in uh, an office as a telephone operator. Now, back in these days, they didn't have smartphones, as you know, and you didn't actually have everybody's phone number. And so what you'd have to do is you'd have to call into the operator with the address of what landline you're trying to call, and then the operator would connect you to that particular address. So one night, this man was operating the phones and a lady uh, asked to be put through to uh, the address of 10 Downing Street. Now, the man knew better than that. 10 Downing Street is the the prime minister's residence uh, there in England. The operators said, hey, you're going to find some crazy people are going to call you, so you need to watch out and be careful. And so he told the lady, hey, ma'am, I'm sorry, I, I can't. I can't put you through to 10 Downing Street. But she was persistent. And again and again, she was asking um, to put her through. Eventually, she said, okay, fine, hang on to the line. And then a man came on the phone. And the man spoke with a voice the operator recognized, a voice everyone would have recognized, a, a deep and powerful voice that was on the radios in the British Empire and beyond. And he said, young man, could I speak to my wife, please? It was Winston Churchill. Let's just say the operator put him up through immediately to his home. Later on, Winston Churchill actually got onto the phone and thanked the operator for protecting his privacy. But friends, God takes time with his call. He's patient and Gentile. As, as Churchill was patient, God is all the more. God calls and he calls and he calls. God waits and he waits and he waits. Isn't God's patience wonderful? It's not just one call and that's it. He walks alongside us in our doubts. He's with us in our fears. And before we believed, he was was there calling us. It's not just one call. If you're a follower of Christ, think back to how God called you to faith. Think back to how patient God was in saving you. Perhaps you rejected God for, for some time. But he kept calling you again and again. He stayed on the line with you. Whatever outrageous things you were doing, and he is the king of kings. He stayed with you. And friend, if you're here and you're not yet a follower of Christ, the fact that you're here tonight, the fact that you're in this room and not somewhere else is proof of his patience and his love. All of us have sinned against God. None of us deserve yet even another day of his grace. It's all grace. And yet God came to us in the darkest of days. The cross of Christ is the greatest act of patience and love. It's there you can find forgiveness. God is being patient with you, oh friend. If you're here and you've not yet believed, 
turn to him. You being here is God's call to you today. Don't miss it. Don't miss it. Well, eventually Eli gets it. Eventually Eli gets that it's God calling him. Verse 9, if he calls you Samuel, you shall say, speak, Lord, for your servant hears. In verse 10, the Lord calls again. This time Samuel answers. Third time's a charm. This time we notice the Lord came and stood. Maybe God is no longer speaking at a distance. Perhaps there's a vision accompanying his voice. We don't know. Samuel's name is repeated. It reminds us of Abraham, Abraham, and Jacob, Jacob, Moses, Moses. Repeating someone's name had special significance. It shows us here, this is an important scene. It's an important moment of time. It's an epic call. Well, all of this might bring up questions of how God calls us today. He doesn't seem to be speaking to us audibly. doesn't seem normally to be speaking to us through visions. This is true. Now, could God speak those ways in those situations at certain times, perhaps, but it's not the normal way God speaks today. Since the days of the early church, that's not the norm. The normal way that God speaks to us today is through his word. Now, God speaks to us, not necessarily in the J.J. Abrams kind of Star Wars special effects filled dramas. You don't often get a, a mystical experience. The main way God reveals himself today is through his word. It's God's revelation to us. So friend, as you consider this and hear this text being preached, I wonder what your relationship is to God's word. What do your devotional times look like? Do you read maybe some online devotional story that someone's written? Or do you read another book? Those perhaps are good things. But friend, nothing, nothing, nothing compares to the very word of God. There's no substitute for the Bible. Don't eat spiritual junk food. If you eat meat, then the Bible is the steak. If you're a fishitarian or more properly a pescatarian, the, the Bible is the salmon filet. If you're a vegetarian, then perhaps the Bible is the greatest salad or greatest green smoothie you've ever seen. No, the Bible is God's truth. It's his word and there is no substitute. It is, it is our spiritual meat. Go to the good stuff. This is why we at, at Redeemer emphasize discipleship so much. It's the process of which a Christian grows in their relationship with God. We grow as a disciple corporately, and we grow as a disciple individually. This is why it's our mission statement, to make disciples of all nations. Discipleship is God's plan for the church. And so we encourage you to be involved either in, well, both corporate discipleship and in individual discipleship. And so larger corporate dis discipleship happens at our church in many ways, one of which is here. This is what we're doing right now. It's corporately together we're coming, and there's a corporate discipleship in sitting under the very word. Word of God. And so whether it's here, whether it's in, in the morning, whether it's in the evening, whether it's in Ras al we gather together under God's word as part of our corporate discipleship. 
We also have formal church-based theological education as a form of discipleship. We call it the Gulf Training Center. If you want to go even deeper in the Bible, if you want to grow as a leader, even learn to teach and to preach and even to pastor, we'll take you through all areas of theology. We'll take you through the Bible and we'll teach you how to preach. We have corporate discipleship going on in our community groups. So you've seen lists of community groups um, and you can... Get in touch anytime with Samuel Uchukru on our staff, and we'll connect you to a group that meets geographically near where you live. And what we do in those groups is we study the text that's going to be preached the following Friday. We join together in fellowship, and we build into each other in that corporate setting. We have ladies' studies. We have midweek Wednesday Bible study where we go through with Pastor Benoit and others verse by verse through the Scriptures, teaching you how to study the Bible. We have... uh, Men's meetings, we disciple our youth, we have tweens and kids. Our uni students gather together for Bible discussions on their campuses. They gather together for conferences where they can sit corporately under God's word. Now we encourage you to be involved in both formal and informal discipleship. Those are some formal ways, but informally, everybody ought to be meeting with, with somebody or, or a few others just to read and just to study the Bible. So when we talk about one-on-one discipleship, Here's what we mean. It's simple, really, but it's profound. I I just dream, what if each and every one of us was meeting with somebody else individually for discipleship? It would be unbelievable. It would be church-changing. And what we mean by that is you just meet with someone regularly, however often that is, and you sit with them. It could be one-on-one. Maybe it's it's a few, but it could be one-on-one where you just open the Bible together, and you study, you read it, you observe what's there, You interpret what's there. You apply what's there to your lives. You ask each other questions. You confess sin. You share about your life. You share prayer requests and you pray for one another. And then you hit repeat and you do that over and over and over and over again. And it's going to change your life. I mean, just dream about what if we were all in discipling relationships? You could be involved in various types of corporate discipleship, whether it's Friday service or whether it's one-on-one. But you also have to be involved in individual discipleship between you and God. So this corporate experience, this corporate worship gathering that we have today, golf training center, community groups, men's meetings, women's meetings, those are great. I hope you're involved in some of those. But nothing replaces our individual relationship with our holy God, our personal God, our God who made us, each and every one of us, to be in a relationship with him. Nothing can substitute that. So coming here on Friday and dusting off your Bible for a few minutes doesn't substitute a daily interaction with our God. And this means reading his word. It means knowing his word. It means praying. It means confessing your sins before God. It means just sitting in a quiet meditation and processing your own heart. Showing up to a church service doesn't replace your individual pursuit. And so friend, Redeemer Church, how are you doing in your relationship with God and his word? The Bible is our guide. We can't do life without it. We sang this earlier this afternoon. The word is a lamp unto my feet. That's a song that I used to sing after I first became a Christian. 
In, in the mid-90s, we, we would sing this, this song. It was written by Amy Grant, another singer, Michael W. Smith, uh, got the song started with, with some of the chorus, and then he handed it off to Amy Grant one night on a large ranch in California, USA, and he just said, I, I don't know what to do with this. I can't write it. Amy, why don't you take this song, and why don't you try to write it? And so she just kind of took it, didn't know when she was going to, to work on it, and she takes off away from Michael at this huge ranch, and she was trying to find her cabin, but she gets lost all by herself. It's dark. It's, it's nighttime. There's bears out. It's a dangerous place, and so she's scared, doesn't know where to go spinning around in circles. And then finally she sees at the, the kind of the, the corner of her eye, she sees a little light. She sees a little lamp. And so all she knows is, is to start walking towards that lamp. And so she just walks and walks and walks, not realizing that it was actually her own cabin. And so she gets to her cabin. She walks inside. And that very night she wrote that song. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. When I feel afraid and think I've lost my way, still you're right there beside me. Nothing will I fear as long as you are near. Please be near me to the end. This is what God's word is. It's our guide. It's our lamp out in the distance. When all else seems dark around us, when all else seems dark in our lives, when we don't know what to do, when we don't know what God's doing, God is our guide. We look to it. We look to his word. We learn his word. If you're going to follow God's word, if God's word is going to be our guide, we have to know it. We have to read it. We have to study it. We have to labor over it. We have to put our hearts in it. We have to keep our eyes on it, and it will direct our steps. It is a light. It is a lamp unto our path. Now, if we keep our eyes on that lamp, if we keep our eyes on the light of God's word, he will direct our steps. And so right now, if you're directionless, if you don't know what to do in a relationship or you're facing some anxiety or you're facing crippling depression or if you're hurting in some way or if you have family trauma or if you have marriage discouragements and disagreement, oh friend, look no further. Start with God's word. I think it's important that we all ask ourselves first, are we digging into the word of God? Because we have God's word to us, why would we look anywhere else first for wisdom? Now, of course, we look to other Christians. We hear sermons preached. We have fellowship. But, oh, friend, do not miss our number one guide, God speaking to us. We don't let our experiences, we don't let our ever-changing feelings guide us. But we look to God and to his word. We're blessed with the Bible. I mean, have you ever just... Just consider that we have God's word to us, that God has spoken. I mean, it's an amazing treasury. It's an amazing gift. We are blessed with the Bible. And yet today, buying a Bible is kind of like buying a car. There are so many options out there. There are so many options. There are several different good translations with study notes and other features to help you understand it. I mean, on the Crossway website alone, there were, as of yesterday, 459 different Bibles for sale. And that's just one publisher. Listen to some of these options. There's the Economy Bible, 
the church Bible, the pew Bible, the pew and worship Bible, the premium pew and worship Bible, the new Christian's Bible, the student Bible, the premium gift Bible, the gift and award Bible, the single column journaling Bible, the two column journaling Bible, the value thin line Bible, and the compact Bible. Now, if you want to study Bible, there's the big giant three kilo ESV study Bible. You know what I'm talking about? Because when that came out, some of us who were extra awesome, we would carry that to church, right? <laughs> I don't know if any of you have one of those today, but it gives you quite a workout. If you don't want that, there's the Global Transformation Study Bible, the Archaeology Study Bible, the Global Study Bible, the MacArthur Study Bible. I know some of you love that. The Systematic Theology Study Bible and the Story of Redemption Bible. If you want one for your family, there's a children's Bible, not to be mistaken with the kids' Bible or the Holy Bible for kids. (laughs) The following Jesus Bible, women's devotional Bible, men's devotional Bible. If you want one with pretty drawings, there's the ESV Illuminated Bible. If your eyesight is struggling, you can't see the beautiful pictures, there's the large print thin line, large print thin line reference Bible, or even the super giant print Bible. For those of you who really can't see, and if you can't see at all, you can listen to the ESV Hear the Word audio Bible. Or you can go with one of these interesting options, the Heirloom Single Column Legacy Bible, the Preaching Bible, the Story Bible, the Prayer Bible, the Reader's Bible. And if those weren't enough, there's the ESV Vest Pocket Bible and the ESV Baby New Testament, which is pink colored. Now, I have no idea why it's pink colored. Maybe there's a blue colored one for boys. I don't know. But you get the point. I barely scratched the surface of one publisher of one version. Those are just the print editions. You've got a smartphone possibly that has all kinds of other versions in it and all kinds of translations. The entire Bible has been translated into 683 languages. The New Testament, in addition to that, 1,534 more languages have the New Testament translated. And so Redeemer Church, God's word is a gift. And if there is a language of the Bible translated in a language that you can understand. Oh, friend, that is a gift. That is a gift from God that he speaks to us finite, sinful, dead, and wretched individuals. Now, we read the first article of our Statement of Faith earlier today. Our Statement of Faith is an important document in the life of our church. It states that uh, states what we believe is a church, and we teach it in our membership classes one of the first things we do there. And the very first article describes what we believe about the Bible. In it, it says that the Bible is the perfect treasury, the perfect treasury of heavenly instruction. It's the perfect treasure. There's nothing more perfect. You think of the most perfect diamond and it doesn't compare to the Bible. The Bible is the perfect treasure of heavenly instruction. God's word is a treasure to us. It's the kind of treasure where you sell everything you have to go buy that one thing. Well, what's more overwhelming than all these additions is that God speaks to us at all, as I've said. It's why tribal peoples, when they, they, they celebrate in epic ways when they receive uh, a Bible translation in their language. Have you ever seen one of these videos? If not, you have to watch one. It's your homework for this week. It's the first time in 10 years I've asked for YouTube homework in church. Uh, but, but here's what you do. You go uh, on the internet. You just go to Google and type in tribe receives Bible translation. Tribe receives Bible translation. You have to watch it. The, the first video that shows up is a tribe receiving their very first Bible in their language. And I, I cried when I watched it this week when the chief of the Kimyal community in West Papa prayed to God and said, You looked at all the different languages and chose which ones you would put into your word. 
You thought that we should see your word in our language. Today is the day you had chosen for this to be fulfilled. I just, just, just love, love that. And then he says, it has come to pass. They had waited 47 years for this moment. I mean, the tears of the community, they're all crying. They're receiving this Bible. Those tears eventually turn to cheers. There's a party. They dance. They're, they're wearing their, 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 their dress. They're singing. There's a ceremony where the tribal leader actually receives the, the Bible. They, they kiss the Bible. They hold the Bible. They, 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 they can't believe that God has, has given them his words. If you watch this video, you will cry. I promise. You will cry. So there's your homework. Tribe receives Bible translations under six minutes long. It'll encourage your soul. Oh, Redeemer Church, having God's word and never opening it is like winning the lottery and not taking your ticket to receive the money. How can we let our Bible gather dust on our shelves? Maybe you're like me. I spend too much time on my phone. We spend so much time on our phones waiting and looking to see if someone's communicating to us. We wake up. Many of us turn on our phones first thing to see if anybody chatted with us or communicated with us during the night. We wait throughout the day for the very next message, and yet God is speaking to us, and we have access to it anytime. Well, on this particular night in 1 Samuel, 3,000 years ago, the Lord spoke to Samuel. Verse 11, back in the text, the Lord says, Behold, there's God speaking to Samuel, Behold, I'm about to do a thing in Israel at which the two ears of everyone who hears it will tingle. Yahweh is letting Samuel know what's going to happen in Israel. There will be disaster. There will be judgment. It was so bad, it'll make the ears, the two ears of everyone who hears tingle. This is not an expression you want to hear. If you know your Old Testament history books uh, and prophecy books really, really well, you'd know that two other times in the Old Testament, this phrase, this language is used. You'll see it in 2 Kings 21 and in Jeremiah chapter 19. Each time it's used in drastic moments of disaster, of judgment. So we know this is serious. There will be disaster in Eli's house, verses 13 and 14. I declare to him that I'm about to punish his house forever for the iniquity that he knew because his sons were blaspheming God and he did not restrain them. Therefore, I swear to the house of Eli that the iniquity of Eli's house shall not be atoned for by sacrifice or offering forever. Now, of course, there is sacrifice and forgiveness for sins, but Hophni and Phinehas, they were committing blasphemy. They didn't believe God. They were blaspheming his divine name, and there was always a capital offense for this. There's capital sin. They weren't believers, and so in your unbelief, no sacrifice could atone for you. Eli failed to restrain them, and judgment has come. This is a longer scene, but now the, the curtain is setting and closing on the second scene. We've seen God's silence. We've seen God speaks. Now there's a third and final scene. God sends. God sends. There's a final scene. The curtain is drawn again and God sends. And the first message to be sent to give, well, it's 
quite a message. Again, Samuel was a teenager at best. Eli was his foster father, an older man. What is Samuel going to do? Verse 15, Samuel lay until morning. Okay, Samuel's hoping his alarm clock is not going to go off. Okay, he's not looking forward to this. Somehow he decides, yeah, so I ran as fast as I could to Eli in the middle of the night. But you know, now... I think I'm going to hang on in bed as long as I can. I'm sure there was a temptation for Samuel to snooze. But there in verse 15, then he opened the doors of the house of the Lord, and Samuel was afraid to tell the vision to Eli. Well, Samuel must have written this part. Who else would have known he was afraid? He's being brutally honest here. I mean, we can relate to this, can't we? Maybe you remember a difficult conversation you had to initiate. It's not easy. Samuel's humanity is on display here. It's uncomfortable for him. He's got some really, really, really bad news that he's got to share to Eli. He was tasked with telling his surrogate father that the priesthood was going to end and that his sons, Hophni and Phinehas, are going to die. That's Samuel's challenge. Will he obediently share the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth? It's just one thing to share good news, right? We love sharing good news. We love sharing about the new hallow, hallow kiosk at the mall. We love sharing about the discount at the store. We love sharing World Cup results when our team wins. We love sharing good news, but sharing bad news, sharing news of judgment, that's a whole other story. And this is exactly what God calls Samuel and all of us to do. And we have to share the whole news. We can't just talk about God's love apart from God's judgment. We have to share about our sin and Christ's love in saving us from our sin. We share the good news about God's love. We also share about God's justice. We share about heaven and hell, Leviticus and Luke, death and life, joy and judgment. Now, like Samuel's task, our message is difficult. And yet our message is also hopeful. There's grace and mercy at the cross of Christ. There's new life through the resurrection of Christ and our future resurrection as believers. Well, some believers think it's loving to downplay sin and judgment, but nothing could be further from the truth. When we do that, when we change God's message, it's actually arrogant. It's not loving at all. The most loving thing we can do is to preach God's words as he's spoken them to us. The most unloving thing we could do is to only preach feel-good, man-centered, self-help messages. It's because there really is a heaven and there really is a hell and people actually go there. It's not loving to keep people from the truth. That's why our services are not some kind of razzle-dazzle. We just hold out the word. We're just preaching the word. That's it. And then we send you out after the benediction. I normally say, go in peace into the world. That's because as Christians, we're saved to be sent. We gather here together on Fridays to be scattered on Saturdays. We carry God's message into the world. Christ saved us to be sent. And Samuel here is faithful to preach God's message to Eli. Did you notice this? Now, it's a grace to Samuel that Eli helps him out. I think you noticed that in there. Did you notice how eager Eli is to get the whole truth from Samuel? Verse 17, Eli said, what was it that he told you? Do not hide it from me. May God do so to you and more also if you hide anything from me of all that he told you. Now, Eli helps him out by putting him under a type of curse. It's a threat. Samuel, you you better tell me the, the whole truth or you got some trouble coming to you. 
And so verse 18, Samuel tells him everything. In a moment of sobriety, it seems Eli understands the severity and truthfulness of the message. A Redeemer Church, even with the difficult messages, we can be confident in God's word. Verse 19, Samuel grew and the Lord was with him. And listen to this. The Lord was with him and let none of his words fall to the ground. God's words are different than our words. Falling to the ground here can have the idea of to rot, to fall into pieces. What it's saying is that the words of God never pass away. They take up space. The reformer Martin Luther once said that a human makes a little word and it leaves the mouth and it goes into the air to to disappear. It's gone. But the word of God is heavier than heaven and earth and will outlast both of them. Human words don't take up space, but God's words fill up space. Samuel was faithful in proclaiming God's word. And in verse 20, he's confirmed as a prophet of the Lord from Dan to Beersheba. These were the traditional limits of Israel to the north and to the south. Everyone knew from Dan to Beersheba, everyone knew that Samuel had God-given authority. He is a prophet of God. And in verse 21, the Lord appears again. So we're back. We, we saw in the beginning of the chapter that lamp, that light was still shining. We see here at the end that the lamp has not gone out. When God's word is shared, there's always hope. Oh, friend, you don't have to be the most eloquent person. You don't have to be the most mature Christian to share God's word. It's the word that has power. This is why our church has seen fruit. This is why lives have been changed. It's not because we're amazing leaders. It's not because we're amazing members. I mean, our leaders in this church over the years have struggled with anxiety and sleeplessness. We struggle with disability. We've struggled with depression. We struggle with any number of things. I mean, even just last month, our elders, we gathered for a day away and we spent the first few hours just, just sharing our heartaches and sharing our pain and praying for each other. There was, there was some tears for some of us and we just prayed. We're broken men. Our church is filled with broken men and broken women who need Jesus. I mean, we've had staff transitions. Those have been hard for us. People we've loved have left. We've had sin problems in our church. We have venue problems. We can't even get worked out yet where we're going to meet regularly. We don't even have that figured out. We're weak people. In fragile circumstances, none of us are heroes. None of us are heroes. There's only one hero in this church, and it's Jesus Christ. He's the hero of this church. He's grown this church. We are feeble. But when we're armed with God's word, when we know God's word, when it's on our hearts, we can be confident here along with Samuel that God's word will never fail. And so regardless of our anxieties, regardless of our venue situations, regardless of even sin that's been in this church, regardless of the pain that's here, we know that God is building his church. We know it's not us, but it's Christ in us and through us. And so in just a moment, we can all stand together and we can sing with confidence, yet not I, but through Christ in me. Let's pray. Oh, Father, your word will never fail. It is a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. It is the perfect treasury of heavenly instruction. Oh, it is the perfect treasure. Would our church, would Redeemer Church of Dubai delight in the law of the Lord? Would we be like trees planted by streams of living water? 
Father, bless us now as we respond to your work by singing and as we respond to your work by giving to the offering. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.